Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The revolution will be televised. Hello and welcome to episode 18 of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host Dan Tracy and in the next 60 minutes we'll be dissecting all the hot topics in football. As per usual, we'll be discussing what has been going on in the Premier League over the past few days... Well, in addition to that, there are also some off-pitch activities that have caught our eye and they'll be getting our attention in the next hour. It's been another incredible week of football and that means that Cole is off on a scouting mission for me. However, that means it's Wally Pip time because leading the line from the front is Drew. Drew, how have you been and I hope all is well. I'm doing well, thank you. You know, I'm thinking since we're getting into the Christmas period and we might have to change tactics and all these different things, I'm thinking instead of two up front anyways... We should just have me play as a false nine. So I think this actually works out perfectly for today. Excellent. Right. I best do the social media bits first. Otherwise, we'll be talking to the abyss once more. First, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at StanTracy1983. Also, the podcast has its own account, which is at RealFootballPod. If you want to become a shareholder, all you need to do is follow and join this very elite members club. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast. And if you use that platform, then don't forget to subscribe as you won't miss a single episode, and also leave a review. And if you're not a fan of all things Apple, you can find me on SoundCloud and Acast. While the easiest way to find all the links is by going to realfootballcast.com. As you should know by now, the Real Football Cast is sponsored by Loserpool. And what is Loserpool, I hear you ask? It's the company behind the game, The Last Man Standing. One which is free to enter, and the prize pool once again stands at £1,000. If this has grabbed your interest, then be sure to visit loserpool.com and create an account. The odds are winning are great, but they're even better if you sign up. Right then, it's time to go live. And where should we go first? Let's turn on our television sets, because I want to talk about how we will both be watching our midweek action, because it seems as if a television revolution is on the horizon. Ten midweek matches in two batches have been snapped up by Amazon Prime in the UK, and that means a new platform has entered the UK television landscape, and it's creating quite a stir. So, Drew, first up... How's that working for you on your side of the pond? Is that something different from NBC? Have you got Amazon as well? 
So we have Amazon Prime, but it's not showing the games. The games will still be on NBC Sports oh, yeah. for everyone to watch on TV. But I'm still paying attention to it because I have been a big fan of streaming for a very long time. You know, if you think about it, sports are the only form of entertainment that haven't gone to live streaming in the past, you know, five or eight years. If you look at movies and TV, you have Netflix and Hulu and and uh, Disney Plus, all these different things. Music is YouTube and Spotify. Books is Kindle and and you know, take podcasts now. A lot of TV shows are even offered on podcasts. So everything is streaming except live sports. So I'm glad to see this finally starting. For me, I've been saying for a while, the snowball effect doesn't take place until finally the broadcasting rights are streaming domestically. Right here in the US, we can watch the Bundesliga streaming on ESPN Plus. We can watch Serie A, or I'm sorry, that starts next year. Right now we can watch Serie A streaming on ESPN Plus. But domestically, those are still on TV in their respective countries. And so I think, you know, overseas rights don't have that much of an influence. Where now, with Amazon Prime having this midweek set of fixtures and Boxing Day, I actually think this is the beginning of the revolution, as you kind of alluded to uh, a moment ago. And so I'm in love with this. I think this is a great idea. I think Amazon Prime have a perfect set of fixtures at a spe- at a spectacular time for them. And I think this is going to be the start of a great transition from TV to online streaming for, for football and, and generally for all of sports. Because when it comes to the Premier League TV rights in the UK, they can only be described as, I guess, archaic. You have the blackout rule in place, which means that no 3pm Saturday game can be televised. So is this, this Amazon process, is this the testing of the water for that rule to finally be eroded? Yes, and, and that's exactly why I think Amazon went with just two games or two match days. Let's start with these. Let's see how it does. And the reason I think it, it, it's so great is because, you know, take before, midweek or Boxing Day, you have games kicking off at the same time, and you're at the mercy of the Sky or BT, whichever, you know, whichever match they choose to show. Where with streaming, you don't have that. So essentially, you're satisfying more customers with more options and options that they like. You know, I don't know how Amazon Prime is going to do this. I'm assuming essentially they have all 10 games on there and you can just click the one you want to watch. So if you're, you know, a Man United fan, you don't have to sit through a Man City game that's broadcasted on TV now. You can watch your team. So I think this is fantastic. And the two match days, I think, are that test. If they do well enough, then I could definitely see Amazon Prime going in the next right cycle to purchase maybe the Sunday night match. I, I don't remember if that's on Sky or BT right now, but maybe they go and buy that one. So instead of just having 20 matches in you know a one-month period, they could have essentially 30, 35 matches throughout the entire campaign. So I do think this is where it begins, and I'm happy to see it. I believe one of their channels, obviously you've got all 10 games being shown across what will be three days, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, but they've also got another channel called Goal Center, which is going to be pretty much like a NFL-style red button game pass. So could you ever see that happening in the UK? You know, the likes of Sky taking that on. Let's say you pay, 
don't know, £150 for sake of a figure. Could be anything, really. But then you just see that, like a, maybe a season ticket for your team and you're watching all 38 games regardless or, you know, a goal package like Red Zone. How would that pan out, do you reckon, in the future? That definitely might play out. And, and the reason I think that would happen is because generally large companies, you know, executive, C-level executives don't like to rock the boat. And they see that that type of package or broadcasting uh, dynamic has worked in the U.S. for the NFL. Therefore, they might try and implement it. But I actually think that's unnecessary now because when that came about, people didn't really have the Internet the way we do now. And that was kind of not a happy medium but a better option where now I still think – Implementing that with the internet and what we have now isn't a great option. I think that is, as you said, archaic. I think that would actually not be as productive, as amazing, as satisfactory as just putting all the games on. I could understand if they did that more as a way of just fans who don't want to watch a different game – They just want to be able to kind of see the big moments or they just want to be able to flip through. That's fine. But as a way of having, you know, only one 3 p.m. kickoff or I know you guys can't really see that, but just indulge me. Instead of just having one game showing at the same time and the rest on this package of everything available, I don't necessarily think that's the best way to do it. Unless it's just a fan who kind of just wants to flip through and, and see big moments. But if it's someone who wants to genuinely watch their team, watch other games, I don't think that really helps them. And I guess with the NFL style sort of red button sort of concept, that that game is more structured, so you know when action could happen. You know, if it's a first and yards or whatever to get over to the line, then you think, right, hit the red zone and we'll watch that and see how that plays out. Football's a little bit more dynamic, isn't it? More sort of end to end, ball can go sort of anywhere. So you, when you're trying to sort of catch the best bits of every game, that kind of technology might not lend itself to its best capabilities. Yeah, exactly. And so that's why I think if, if they did have a channel like that, it would kind of have to be, well, it would probably have to be on delay, but it would have to be like a live looking. If someone gets taken down for uh, a penalty and then they cut to that and see, especially if it's late on in the match or something like that, I could see that, again, maybe attracting some eyeballs of people just flipping through. But I still think the best option, because we have the capabilities now, just stream every match live in its entirety and let people choose what they want to watch. I I do think that is going to be the best option. So in this argument, you know, the way we're sort of spelling this out, the TV fan wins. However, they say that football without fans is nothing. So you still need people to go to the games. So if a lot of people are now inclined to watch everything they can because, you know, the capabilities are there. You know, if I live in London, but I could quite easily just watch the Merseyside Derby, then I'm sort of winning from that point. However, attendances then might slip. Is the answer there that Premier League teams could make their tickets a lot cheaper to then still get the grounds full? Well, they could do that. But honestly, I fundamentally disagree with the premise that it would stop fans from going because that's exactly what the argument was about broadcasting games on radio and then on TV. Well, if you put it on radio... People won't come to the match. That didn't happen. They'll say, if you put it on TV, people will just watch it on TV. And while that's true, look at the Premier League now. 
it's the behemoth it is because of TV. So I think the internet broadcasting, whether it be Prime or whatever it happens to be in the future, it's the same thing. People will watch, but they're still going to go to matches because going to a match is about you know the in-stadium experience. It's not just about watching the football. Obviously, that, that's, that's, that's a big part of it. But you have that feeling of, of singing with fans. You have that feeling of being able to see it live. You know, it, it's a much different experience. I mean, take now with Netflix. Yes, people stay home and watch Netflix more. But you also still have movies that are some of the highest grossing of all time. Now, of course, inflation plays into that, but that's a different argument. So I, I just fundamentally disagree that fans would stop going to games, especially, like you mentioned, take Merseyside Derby, which is happening this midweek. That stadium is going to be sold out. Anfield's not going to be half empty because games can now be seen on Amazon Prime. So I, I, I just simply don't agree with that premise. Um, but could teams lower ticket prices? Yeah, that, that definitely could happen. I just don't think it will. I don't think they will react to Amazon Prime or whichever streamer it is in the future by lowering prices because I don't think attendances will take a hit. Yeah, I guess the sort of counter-argument that you're sort of making is that if the product is good enough, then people will be clamoring at home thinking, one day, I want to watch that. And the demand will be so great because so many more people are watching it first on TV, then then that sort of trickle-down effect will come down to the stadiums. Is that fair? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, that's what we have now. I mean, I, I, I know you're in the UK, and I don't know if you kind of follow this, but me being a, a you know a fan abroad, and, and I see this online all the time, is people who make essentially pilgrimages to the ground of their favorite club and and i'm sure there's people in the uk that do that you know maybe someone who who lives in in the northern part of england is a big you know spurs fan or something because his family moved there and he's never been and now he finally gets the chance right he's only seen them on tv right so i i i don't think the in-game experience i don't think attendances will drop at all because games will now stream online i think people will still go to the stadium it is about that experience and I think the clubs will do just fine when it comes to making money, that's for sure. Yeah, I think there's no shortage of that. But in terms of the arrival of Amazon on the scene, does that then perhaps put some alert on Facebook, Apple, even Netflix? Will they will be watching this of interest and thinking when the next wave of rights come about, they might want to be part of this discussion as well? Well, they definitely might. And Am- or I'm not, not Amazon, Facebook used to have the rights to... I believe it was the Champions League in Spanish in South American countries. So Facebook has dabbled in it before. Here in the U.S., they put – this was the previous right cycle. They had one Champions League match each match day available on Facebook for free. Now, generally, it was the worst match. You know, you'd have uh, Zenit versus Gank or something like that. But, you know, the, these different companies have dabbled on it, in it. This is why I think actually Amazon is the perfect streamer of not just football, but all sports. It is they have an incredible opportunity to monetize the the matches that they show. Apple TV and, and Netflix and all these ones don't have that. And this is how. If you're watching a match on Amazon, in the corner they can put an advertisement right on the 30th minute. Not only is it an advertisement, but it's an advertisement for you. They know where you live. 
They have your credit card. They know what you buy. They know how often. They have all this information about you. So they can recommend something to you. Not only can they recommend a product tailor-made for you, but then you can do one-click buy and it arrives the next day. Apple TV can't do that. Netflix can't do that. Amazon has a huge opportunity here to make money. And, and I'm sure part of it will also have to go to the Premier League. It's not all pure profit for Amazon. Now, I know some people are probably going to say, well, I don't, I, I don't like that. They're selling my information to advertisers. And, and, and I get that. I, I completely understand if you feel it's an invasion of privacy and you don't like that. You know, perfect argument. I get it. Where I disagree with that is I would rather see advertisements for something I'm interested in than a generic advertisement for, you know, McDonald's or for Coca-Cola. I'd rather see something that I'm genuinely interested in. And so I think Amazon then also helps that user experience by giving you better advertisements. So that's why I think Amazon is actually a perfect, perfect streamer for, again, not just the Premier League, but for all of sports. We look at the, I guess, the streaming wars it's been um, quoted as. You've got like Apple, Netflix, Disney, Hulu in America. They are trying to get up all the content that's available at the moment. There's almost an arms race, and a lot of that will come down to what is available. Will they look at this next wave of sports rights and think the Premier League could be their golden goose? Yeah, I think a, a lot of companies will do that. The problem is I don't think a lot of companies should look at it. And the reason is because right, if you look at you know Game of Thrones or now The Mandalorian, which is out, you can watch that the next day. You can watch that three days later. You can wait till the end and binge watch it. You can't really do that with live sports. And so that's why I actually think for some of these places, Disney Plus or for Netflix, it's not a good fit to get sports rights because no one's going to sit there and binge watch all of Manchester United's matches this year in one weekend, right? That's not going to happen. So that's why I actually don't think those companies should get into it. Now, will they? Probably. I'm sure a lot of them will put in big bids. I actually just don't think it's good for their business model. I don't think they can make a lot of revenue off of it, and I don't think it's actually a good fit. Okay, the final TV-based question of this show. Could the Premier League look at this and think, do you know what, why don't we just do it? Why are we selling this on to a third party? Why don't we make our own Premier League TV, a streaming network, charge whatever they need to charge and just do it that way? Cut out the middleman. Yeah, they definitely can, and I'm sure they have had discussions about that. I don't think that's the right move because, you know, for all intents and purposes, the Premier League is an event organizer. That's really what they are. They are an entertainment event organizer. They're not a distribution company. And so to me, I think, why waste all of that time, money, resources, energy on creating, you know, fixing all the problems and handling distribution like that when you have companies that already have it set up? Amazon Prime already streams. They know how to do it. Why would you go through all that hassle when they're going to pay you, you know, $1 billion, $2 billion, $3 billion or pounds, and you don't have any of that headache. So I don't think it's in the Premier League's best interest to do it on their own. Do I think they have considered that and will? Yes, absolutely. Do I think they should do it? No. 
Okay, that's a fantastic debate, and I'm sure it's a topic we will come back to over the next weeks and months. But it'll be like you say, certainly interesting to see how Amazon deal with this. Also, it'll be interesting to see their server power because a lot of strains going to be put on broadband across the the country. So one thing they don't want is you know bad streaming technology, and it's all gone wrong. There's a multitude of complaints. I know that happened with the tennis when they bought the rights over here. So fingers crossed they'll actually get things right this time around. Talking of getting things right. Watford and Arsenal. Now, they haven't been getting it right on the pitch. And as a consequence, they both sacked their managers in the past show. So, let's go to Arsenal first. And I know you've been pretty much vocal of your criticism of Unai Emery. But it's fair to say, after that Europa League defeat to Eintracht Frankfurt, the game was really up for the former Seville manager. Yeah, and you know, you're right. I have been critical of him. I have been openly, uh, not championing, but recommending I guess maybe his firing for you know multiple reasons but I think the reason it finally came down to that loss against Frankfurt at home in Europe is because the stadium was half empty right you you can have bad results you can have bad performances you can make bad decisions but the one thing you can't do is lose somebody money and the moment Unai Emery lost them money out the door he went And so that's what it finally came down to. Did he deserve the sack for their performances? Yeah, probably. Also for losing the dressing room? Yeah, absolutely. But up until that match against Frankfurt, the board said, and you know, maybe this is a golden dagger, that we back him, he has our support. But they were willing to put up with everything until they started losing money. And so that's why they finally fired him. And right now, we saw at the weekend against Norwich, nothing changed. Freddie Lundberg, you know, not exactly an experienced manager at the top level, not really a fault of his own, but he has a, a terrible set of players. And so until they get new players, until they get a better manager, nothing's going to change at Arsenal. And that's exactly what we saw this weekend as well against Norwich. So what direction do Arsenal go in? I think they also have a list of names they'd like to get. But now do they have to be a bit more realistic and sort of work their way down the list? Like, you know, they're even talking about giving Lundberg the job in a sort of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer fashion where they hope that a club legend can then create this resurgence. Are they asking too much of the Swede as well? Well, that to me is the worst reason to give somebody the position. Sir Alex Ferguson was not a club man before he went to Man United. And look at him. So being a club man has nothing to do with your success. If you're a good manager, you're a good manager. It doesn't matter if you played for that club or not. So I would not give the job to Lundberg because of that. What I think Arsenal are going to do, and something that I would not if I were in charge, what I think Arsenal is going to do is they're going to go and get a big name. They're going to try and get Allegri. They may even try, I don't know if he'll do it, and get Pochettino. They might go after Brendan Rodgers, which for Brendan Rodgers would be a step down. I would not leave Leicester for Arsenal. And I imagine they're going to do that. Maybe they go after Bielsa. Maybe they do something like that. They try and get a bigger name. What I think would be better for Arsenal is going with one of the younger managers who has built a club, either in the lower rungs of the Premier League or maybe in the championship. If you look at someone like Eddie Howe, Sean Dyche, because they have already built a club or built a squad and made them better and for some of them gotten them promoted. Arsenal obviously doesn't need promotion, but they need someone who can come in and build, who can find undervalued and underrated quality in players. 
that's what they need. And then obviously if you give them the advantage of money, I think they're going to do even better in that role. Plus, for someone like Howe or Deich, that is a step up. right? Even take Nuno at Wolves. Same thing. He had built that squad. And you, know, you want to talk about Portuguese connections and everything, fine. It doesn't matter. He's built them, gotten them into the Premier League, then into the Europa League. And now they're fighting for a Europa League spot again this year. And for him, going to Arsenal would be a step up. So I think that's the better direction that Arsenal need to go in. Get one of those younger managers. Get someone who's built a squad and made them significantly better than where they were before. Yeah, I think they're going to have to look a couple of rungs down the totem pole. Because obviously, you know, the names like Allegri, maybe even Ancelotti, they're all sort of these headline names that Arsenal fans would love to install. But is that another short-term fix? You know, is that going to be a job they're actually going to be willing to take whereas like you say if they're looking at a, the next calibre or the next wave of Premier League manager then someone like an Eddie Howe or a Nuno could be the perfect man because they've done it once and they'd be more than sort of willing to test themselves in a sort of higher uh, career level and you almost think it's the perfect fit but before they get that man they need to get some some wins on the board so Aubameyang we referenced so many times that he's carried Arsenal and that was clearly evident on Sunday he earned a gun as the point, but it's fair to say that Burnt Leno saved it at the other end in the second half. Yeah, he did. And, you know, unfortunately, well, I, I guess it's not unfortunately, but strikers get all the glory and keepers very rarely do. Now, you're right. I think Leno came up big for them and he has on more than one occasion. And so he deserves a lot of credit for Arsenal being in the Europa League or getting a Europa League spot last year as well. And then this year, you know, kind of saving them. But I do think more credit has to to go to Aubameyang. I mean, honestly, this guy's going to be a paraplegic before the year ends. <laughs> that's that's how hard he's working to carry this team. You know, at Manchester United, they say, oh, Ole's at the wheel, watch out. Well, Ole's just practice driving. He's playing a video game. Aubameyang is like Atlas shrugging, just carrying the entire Arsenal world on his back. And this guy is going to have a fracture at every single vertebrae before the end of this year. He has been absolutely phenomenal for them. If I'm Obama Yang, there is no way I stay at Arsenal past this current deal. Absolutely not. I'm telling my agent right now, you find me another club or you find me the best back specialist in the world because he's going to have problems for the rest of his life. I mean, he, he is the hunchback of Notre Dame in live form, essentially, after playing for this team. That's an excellent visual. Spot on, actually. But... um. In terms of Aubameyang, obviously got a brace, a penalty. He took two stabs at that, and the first one was called back because of encroachment, which seems to be another thing which is getting picked up by VAR. Last season, probably, um, that wouldn't have been spotted. You know, it's just a, a cleared penalty, rebound, and it's game on. Is this technology at its best or at its worst? You know, that God, that's such a tough question because it's kind of like the offside thing. And I'm okay with players getting called for encroachment or for the keeper coming off his line. Especially, how many times do you see the referee will go up to to the outfield players and tell them, don't encroach, don't jump early. And he does the same thing with the keeper. And so in my book, if you've been warned five seconds ago and you still encroach, you deserve to get called for it. And, you know, it's not... It's not exactly the heat of the moment. It's not an open play like offside where you're trying to time things 
against other people moving, the line doesn't move. You don't have to jump early. And so I'm not at all upset when players get called for encroachment or for keepers coming off their line. They've been warned. It's not a moving target like a defender when you're trying to, to beat them, uh, beat the offside trap or something like that. You have your warning. You know the rules. You were just told. So in my book, if you cross the line early, you deserve to get called for it. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, it's like they're actual infractions, aren't they? And you can clearly see that if something's been committed, then like, what are you doing that for? It's wrong. Call it back. But, you know, these offsides by a toe, a nose or what have you that we've discussed so many times before, that's where you think, oh, God, like, why is it so, as it is, like, it's so pernickety. But you're right. Uh, Norwich, let's quickly chat about them. Four points from six. You'd have to say good value for those points in the last few matches. The mood would have certainly been lifted around Carrow, but there's still a lot of work to be done, isn't there? Yeah, I, I think for Norwich, obviously they had a terrible slide after that win against Manchester City. But I, I don't think that this is where they turn it around and now they're going to go mid-table. I think Norwich are going to continue to struggle. I think this is this is a good set of games, good for them, four points and six. But still, they're going to have a tough year of it. They might give a better fight to stay in the Premier League this season. Maybe this helps them with a little bit of confidence and all of that. However, if you draw Arsenal at home and you think that's a brilliant result, you're not that good of a team. Therefore, I don't think Norwich should look at this and, and see it as some sort of moral victory or anything like that. I think they're still going to continue to struggle. Puki has not been in goal-scoring form like he was for the first you know, month of the season, and I think they're going to continue to have a tough time. And then now they're going into the Christmas period playing every three days. I think they're going to continue to struggle, and this is going to be a tough time for them. Right, okay, that's one manager who has got the chop. On the other side of the break, we'll talk about the other. Your accumulator letting you down again. You've cashed out early, and you just can't win. Prehistoric football coupons? Nah. Have a think about it. Why not play a new way? At Loserpool, pick a loser and win £1,000 in a last man standing tournament. Be a loser and win at Loserpool. Enter for free now. Visit loserpool.com. Okay, welcome back. I hope you're still there. I hope Drew's still there. Otherwise, I'll be on my own for the next half an hour. I think he is. I think we're all right. So, before we chat about a certain ex for manager, let's quickly recap the loser pool points and pick some last week. We're not going to do one on this show because it's all midweek and we're all out of sync. So, let's just do a quick recap. Cole is still top of the leaderboard with 14 points because he picked Bournemouth to lose correctly. Drew, you were saved by VAR as your Everton pick just came good at the very, very end. So you're hot on his heels with 12 points. And I went for West Ham to lose. And Drew, what happened there? I mean, if we have time, we'll chat about the actual match itself. But I'm languishing at the bottom. So to recap the table, it's Cole on 14, Drew on 12, all to play for. And me in relegation mood in eight points. So not good for me. And it's not good for Watford because... 10 games is all he got. Kike Sanchez-Flores is gone. So nothing in the way of a new manager bounce. Was that the right decision or not? Honestly, at this point, Watford are just firing managers just to fire them. It's almost as if their strategy is new manager bounce twice a year and that's going to keep us up. 
That's essentially what they're going for. And it's unfortunate for Kike Sanchez Flores. I'm sure part of it he knew. Well, every manager, it's never a long-term stay. It's always an interim job, every single manager. I don't care what team you manage, it's always interim. But I think for him, he knew lasting the season would be almost a miracle. I think he knew that it was going to be a tough time. And, and obviously, it shows that Javi Gracia wasn't the problem. Neither was Kike Sanchez Flores. This team is just downright awful. You know, Troy Deeney has been hurt for the year. And, and imagine when he does come back and he doesn't start scoring goals, what are they going to do then? If they're, if, they're, if they're waiting for, you know, Captain Troy Deeney to lead the charge and take them to the promised land of, of staying up, if he doesn't kick on, they're really in a pickle at that point. And Gerard De La Feu hasn't played as well as he did last year. And so I think Watford are unfortunately just in a sorry state of affairs on the pitch more than anything else. And that's most likely going to lead them to the championship. And so for Kike Sanchez Flores, it's unfortunate. Again, though, I think he understood the situation. And I'm not saying it's okay. I'm not saying he shouldn't feel upset about getting sacked. Nobody wants to get fired. I've been fired before. It's terrible. Uh, but I, ultimately, I think deep down he knew that this was going to happen at some point or another. I mean, when you look at Watford and their constant, shall we say, revolving door policy when it comes to managers, has this short-term approach finally caught up with them? It sure seems like it because, you know, if you look at, was it Sean Dyche? I believe he took the Burnley job, got them promoted, then they got relegated, then they got promoted again. That's right. I, yeah. I, and so, you know, look at him. They were patient enough to endure a relegation and let him play it out and then come back up. And I know teams really want that Premier League money, and that's why they're so quick to pull the trigger. And I, I think it's, it's a valid reason. I do think, though, more teams, and especially a club like Watford, they're not a big club. They're not even really like a mid-sized club. They are pretty small. And so I think they have to become a little bit more patient. They can't pull the trigger so quickly like a big six club fighting for Champions League. I think they have to reevaluate, reassess, and kind of change their strategy. The, re the revolving door, I guess you could say it's, quote, worked over the past few seasons. But like you said, it's catching up to them. And, and I think this is kind of the beginning of the end for them in this kind of Premier League run that they've had over the past few seasons. And I think they're going to go down. And until they change their strategy, it's going to be tough for them to not only get back up to the Premier League, but stay up. I mean, when you look at certain clubs in the Premier League, you get an idea of what they're all about and what they stand for. But when it comes to Watford, what identity do they have? Like, What are they all about? Because I can't really see what they sort of stand for. It's almost as if they're just a team of foreign mercenaries now it's not really about nationalities or such but you know there's no pride in youth or homegrown talent and it's like I say all this sort of short-termism like why don't they actually put building blocks in and progress that way well you know they probably should and I think for a smaller club that's probably going to make more sense is you have especially with younger players I think that drive and that determination to make it to the senior squad and make their debuts and 
play their first professional home match in, you know, for Watford, Vicarage Road and everything. I, I think there is a, a bit of pride in that. And I think fans will will take to that very well. I think if you're a bigger club, you know, a big six team, then I, I think the, as you said, you know, the mercenary approach, I, I don't think that's a bad thing. And it probably works pretty well. But if you're a smaller club, I don't really think you can afford to do that. And if you take Watford, for example, it's not working and it's actually going to end up taking them backwards. And so I, I, I do think they they should change it a little bit and try and invest more in their youth, in their academy and try and kind of build up that way. I, I think that probably would be a better strategy for them. So if we go to the game that was ultimately the death knell for Mr. Sanchez, it was one that was turned by a lack of VAR. So by the letter of the law, should Southampton's level have been pulled back? And, you know, there's an apology after the game saying, oops, we didn't get that camera angle at the time, but too little too late really, isn't it? Yeah, you know, it, it boggles my mind that the broadcasters have more angles than VAR. I... Honestly, I don't think that's true. I think it's an excuse they use because now the onus is not on the VAR official. It's not on anyone at the, uh, what is it, the PGMOL. It's not on anyone there. It's on the technology. Oh, the technology failed us. We didn't, we didn't have this to help us out. I do not believe for one second that TV broadcasters have more opportunities to see a replay. I just simply don't. It doesn't make any sense for that to be the case. And especially, it's not as if this is the first week of the season. It's not as if they're in a testing phase. It's not as if VAR hasn't been used at other competitions in other countries all over the world. So I, I just fail to believe it. And with that being said, I think that's why you get this kind of half-hearted apology about how they didn't have the right camera angle. Yeah, I mean, there can't be anything right in the sense that Sky Sports has got more cameras available to actually show the game than the purpose of trying to make the game better hasn't got the the right eyesight. And it's like, well, you know, surely they've got to be at least on a level playing field, if you pardon the pun, because that, how can that be right, really? But, like you say, too little, too late, a wishy-washy apology, but what good does that do for the ex-Watford manager? As for Southampton, a huge win, and I guess what you'd have to consider a relegation six-pointer. For the Saints, it's almost as if they're now going to have to keep Danny Ings wrapped up in cotton wool if they're going to have any chance of survival. Oh, man. He has been phenomenal over the past few weeks, pretty much earning points for Southampton. And look, I'll, I'll, I'll be the first one to say it. I did not think this was going to happen. I thought Hausenhudel was a dead man walking. He was going to get the sack at some point. And what, even if he didn't, I didn't think that... Southampton would kind of turn it around as they have done in the past couple of matches, surprisingly. But yeah, I think I think this for them was big. A relegation six-pointer at home that they won against Watford. And then now they have another one midweek against Norwich. And again, at home at St. Mary's. I think this could be a huge period for them. You know, over a week to get seven points out of three matches. That's fantastic for them. And so I, I, I think this actually could turn it around. Danny Ings, you're right. They have to be very careful with him. Don't let him drive to and from the training ground. Make him sleep there. Don't risk a crash or any sort of injury. Don't let him do anything. Don't even have him eat breakfast. Just inject you know, liquid foods into him. God forbid he cuts himself with a knife. Nothing needs to get in the way of Danny Ings saving this team right now. It's just goals. That's all I need from him. Nothing else, Danny. Put your feet up. 
So that's two men who have lost their jobs in the past week. And the next one is almost like a cockroach with the way he's hanging on in there. That man is Marco Silva. And Drew, if there's one way to almost have your fate sealed, then a dramatic defeat to Leicester was probably the one. You know, I, I was so surprised that Leicester wasn't winning the match watching it. And I thought, wow, how has Marco Silva pulled another rabbit out of his hat? Because, you know, if you think about it with Everton, even though they have lost some matches recently, they've put in some better performances. Maybe not good, maybe not fantastic, but they've put in some better ones as of late. And so this one against Leicester was kind of another one like, huh, wow, wow. maybe they are finally reaching the level they should be at. Because if you look at this team, they're not the third or fourth worst side in the Premier League. They're not. They should not be that low on the table. But they have played like it. And maybe that's Marco Silva's part or fault, and part of it probably is. But finally, they're starting to pick it up a little bit. And I think this match against Leicester was kind of the culmination of that, except that it ended poorly. And so for Marco Silva, I, I kind of wonder if he's going to get fired now or not, because with the team fighting until the end, with the players putting in, again, some better performances, not great, not fantastic, but better, it seems as if they haven't quit on him. It seems as if they're still doing what he wants. They still, they still are doing what he asks. And so if he hasn't lost the dressing room, maybe it's okay to stick with him. And again, this squad shouldn't be near the relegation zone anyways. I think they've been playing below par, for their standard at least. And so keeping him, I think, actually may not be the worst thing in the world. I've more been surprised that he hasn't been fired more than calling for his firing. Right When it came to Una Emery, I said, get this guy out. He's clearly not doing it. But Marco Silva, I was more shocked that it hadn't happened yet. That was going to be my next point, actually. The fact that it looks like the players are still working for him. He hasn't lost the dressing room like how Pochino did a couple of weeks back. So that's arguably his saving grace. However, that then speaks more volumes about the manager, doesn't it? Because obviously there's some sort of disconnect. Like the players are trying really hard. So are the instructions correct? Like where is it going wrong between manager and pitch? Yeah, maybe he should go manage Arsenal. Maybe they should hire him. Because surprisingly, I, th- I mean, this speaks to him as a manager, either, you know, man management quality or maybe as a motivational speaker. Somehow he's been able to, to galvanize this squad a little bit and keep their heads up, which I didn't think was going to happen. Because if you look at his previous track history in the Premier League, he hasn't been able to do that. And so seeing it now, good for him, right? I, you know, I, I'm, I never want to see someone get fired. I, again, I, I know what it's like. And so good for him. I'm just very, very surprised by it. I do kind of wonder, though, if he, if he does get sacked, who they're going to bring in. And how the players are going to respond to that manager. Because again, right now, it looks as if they're still with Marco Silva. They still feel that he can, you know, guide them out of this misery and into greener pastures. Well, we spoke about David Moyes last week, didn't we? And that's gone down like a lead balloon for some cause. Well, actually, the majority of the Everton fan base. Because that was suggested by um, the former owner, Bill Kenwright, who's got like a 5% share in the club. You know, a safe pair of hands, but surely if they did get Moyes in, which looks a bit unlikely now, that would surely be a retrograde step, wouldn't it? Yeah, I, and not just chronologically, but in all aspects, I think 
that would be a, a step backwards. And you know, like we talked about before, if they're getting him just to save them for this year, then I can kind of understand that. But it, he should not be hired with the intent of being the manager for an extended period of time after this season. I don't think that's the right move. And if I'm Everton, I wouldn't try and make that that move. I I, I think it's kind of like all the other managers in previous seasons that we've talked about, you know, as as a club man. And I think that's why they're looking at at David Moyes. It's, it's as if they're just trying to restore the glory years of his reign. And this nostalgia factor is kind of what they're going after, which to me, nostalgia doesn't win you matches. Talent does. And it's not to say that David Moyes isn't a good manager. Clearly he is. He had a fantastic run at Everton for, what, a decade? You know, and so he's certainly qualified. I just don't think he's the solution to their problems right now. Yeah, and I think also you've got to remember with David Moyes, there's no taking away his record at Everton, but since then he's been an absolute bust. I mean, maybe at West Ham he was a safe pair of hands, obviously didn't take him down, but Sunderland, Real Sociedad, Manchester United... If you're an Everton fan and that name crops up, you're sort of thinking, regardless of his history, I wouldn't want him for his record afterwards. But talking of managers, once again, we have got to give credit to Brendan Rodgers, especially when he switched his system to a 3-5-2. It seems at the moment that whatever way Leicester set up, they really are an exciting team to watch. Yeah, they are, absolutely. And, you know, that's what's so fun about watching them is that they win in so many different ways, right? They've blown out teams they have won by thin margins. They've had comeback victories. And then, of course, this one, the dramatic goal at the end, which was flagged for offside after the goal had gone in. Then VAR canceled out the offside ruling. And look, I've, I, I am someone who is staunchly against VAR, and I make it loud, proud, and known. But in this case, I have to applaud VAR for, of course, being there but getting the call right. I think the officials did, did it right. They let they let everything play out, then flagged him. Then VAR took over and said, no, he was onside. So I think they got the procedure correct. I think they got the call correct. I think VAR did everything perfectly in this instance. Now, I am still against it. I, I will say that I am against VAR. But in this case, I am happy to have seen it used correctly, get the right call, and then, of course, help me in my loser pool pick. That was the most important reason. Of course, it was Kelechi. Ian Acho got the winner. He's almost become the forgotten man at the Foxes. Obviously, he's in the limelight now. But what role can he play? And can he get back to anything close to the hype he had surrounding him when he was at Manchester City? You know, that's tough. I think because right now he's been essentially played out of the squad because everyone else has just been so much better than him. And so I think, unfortunately for him, yeah, you're right. You know, he had a lot of hype. He, ha- he has a lot of talent. But for his sake, there's just guys in front of him that are better and have played and performed very, very well. And so I think this season, he's going to be a super sub, kind of like the way he was in this match. Because when he came on, he absolutely changed the game. He was so dynamic in the midfield. And then, of course, getting into the attack, and the assist for Vardy's goal, and then the the winner at the end. He was phenomenal as a substitute in this game. And so I think that's what he's going to have to do for the remainder of the year. And he'll probably get a couple starts. He'll get his opportunities. But I think he's going to remain as a super sub. 
And next year, if he stays and if Leicester get into Europe, that's really going to be his opportunity because they're going to have to rotate more. They're going to have to use more of their squad, and that's going to be his time to shine. Talking of Manchester City, and it looks like they may have just thrown away their chance of a third straight league success because the draw against Newcastle, coupled with that Sergio Aguero injury, and that might just be their nail in the coffin. Yeah, you know, something that... This is what convinced me in this match that Manchester City are out of the title race, at least right now and and probably for most of the year, is if you look at the two substitutes with 20 minutes remaining, tied 1-1 at Newcastle, relegation battling Newcastle. I I know they're not that low on the table, but points-wise, they're not far off. And the two substitutes for... Manchester City are just walking off the pitch. David Silva and, Mi- and Riyad Mahrez, neither one of them sprinted off. Neither one of them went off at the closest part of the pitch. Right, They went to uh, the substitutes in the middle. David Silva takes off the armband, and instead of giving it to someone else, because really at that point, who cares who's wearing the armband? He doesn't just give it to someone and sprint off. No, he goes all the way to, I believe it was Fernandinho, And just lollygags, wasting time. And this, to me, was arrogance. This, to me, there was no sense of urgency. This was complacency in that, well, we're Manchester City. This is Newcastle. Of course, we're going to end up winning the game. And while they did score from a brilliant goal from Kevin De Bruyne, a few minutes after that, Newcastle equalized. And so I think Manchester City this year have a bit of arrogance, a bit of big-headedness, and I think it has come back to haunt them on several occasions. Norwich was one of them. Newcastle is another one. I, I, I think this game really put on display why they're not going to win the title this year. Yeah, I think you're right in the sense that it's, you know, arrogance, that belief of, oh, we've done it twice, we'll easily do it a third, and it's really not been the case. You'd have to say, though, a spirited draw for Newcastle, but why on earth can none of their attacking trio find the net? Because once again, they got bailed out by more defensively-minded players. It's incredible how little their attackers are scoring. And yet somehow, Newcastle are kind of mid-table, sitting in 14th. I don't know how they're doing it. I mean, in, in the last few weeks, not only has it not been attackers, it's been defenders. I know this one was, was John Joe Shelby, but, or the, the, the second one. But it's incredible that they're getting so much production out of their defensive players. It's mind-boggling. And just imagine if finally their attacking players do kick on. Joel Inton, um, Miguel Almiron. If those guys finally do start contributing on the stat sheet, then Newcastle are going to be really safe. I mean, they're not even going to be flirting with relegation. I I don't think that's going to happen. I do think... Their attackers will continue to struggle. It's been a third of the season. If they can't figure it out now, what what, what are they going to learn in the next few weeks that it's all of a sudden going to click for them? And so I, I don't think that I, I don't think they're going to start scoring in bunches up front. And that's why I think they're going to continue to battle relegation. But for right now, applause to them. This is fantastic for what they've been able to do in recent weeks. Yeah, it's working. I don't know how it's working, but it is. I think, like I say, just celebrate the fact that they are getting results. But there's little to suggest that Joe Linton's going to hit a purple patch anytime soon. Because, like you say, if you've played 14 games, scored one goal, like what is there? Where's this sort of burst of form going to come from? Anyway, 
Talking of defensive-minded players, one of them was at the double for Liverpool on Saturday as Virgil van Dijk scored a winning brace. To Drew, once again, it was a win by the skin of their teeth, just a one-goal margin. Will they care that much, though, especially as this one was record-equalling? You know, I, I think if Liverpool were blowing out teams 5-1, 4-1, then I think they wouldn't be that concerned with giving up goals or having tight matches because they're going to simply outscore teams. Right now, they're, they're just barely getting by with these very close matches. And I think at some point, goals are going to dry up. You know, whether it's through an injury or maybe they start surrendering more goals, right? They, Fabinho is out now and Allison is going to miss the Merseyside Derby this midweek. And at some point, this is going to happen. I mean, take this game. No one in the attack scored. No one in the midfield scored. Like you said, it was Virgil van Dyke. And for one game, that's okay, right? You know, things happen. But if this becomes a trend, that to me is very worrying for Liverpool. And with all of these things taking place, with it, no Allison because of his absurd red card that he deserved, because there's no Fabinho through injury, because maybe the attack is getting a little bit tired right now, I could definitely see them losing to Everton. With Everton being a little bit better as of late, it being, I know it's at Anfield, it's a night midweek game, I could really see this being a banana skin and Everton pulling this one out. At Anfield, I know that that sounds crazy, but I truly think this derby is one to watch and could be a big, big slip for Liverpool. Well, if that happens, Marco Silva will be uh, in the job for quite a while longer, won't he? But obviously, you just he, mentioned... he'll get he'll get a five year extension. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you just mentioned Alison Becker with his erratic red card. You know, brainless, you'd have to say. But what was also brainless was when Adrian came on. What on earth was he doing for Lewis Dunk's free kick? That's so weird because he he told the wall. I, I, I saw this clip. He he comes on, and as he's going towards net, as he gets to the box, he's telling guys. It looks as if he's saying five, five, five guys on the wall, and yet he's still trying to organize them. You know, a minute, ninety seconds later, as that free kick is happening. Now, I will say, maybe the referee didn't realize he was still organizing the wall. And that's why he blew the whistle and allowed Dunk to take the free kick. Again, though, if you've already told the wall, they should know what they're doing. There shouldn't be this confusion. Now, obviously, it's an odd situation with the keeper coming on directly into that free kick. And, you know, how often do keepers really get subbed on and, and all that. So I get it's, it's a bit of, an, uh, of a rarity. Still, though, for someone who played, what was it, eight matches earlier this year with this squad – he should have a little bit of chemistry and relationship with them. And so I think he and the entire you know, Liverpool squad on the pitch at that moment are responsible for that goal. And you know, that's what's so odd about this game was Liverpool had less than 50% possession. It, it, it was so strange. It's, it's not as if Brighton is this huge attacking team where you've got to sit back and counter because Brighton's so dangerous. And I think it reflected in the scoreline. It it reflected in that moment of what was Adrian doing? What was his wall doing? It, it almost looked as if everyone was out of sync in that moment. And that was kind of a, a snapshot of the game. 
Okay, let's move on to Chelsea. We'll squeeze them in quickly. So if they were gallant in defeat the weekend before, that wasn't really the case against West Ham. Were you feeling rather blue after a lacklustre showing? A little bit, yes. What, what, I, what, what I think is most important from this game to take away is Chelsea really need Tammy Abraham back because without him, they are not going to have anyone in attack. Now, with this game, I think you see Olivier Giroud for all of the qualities he does have, being good in the box, being good with his head, he has absolutely no pace. And I know that's not a shock to anyone, but he cannot be a starter for Chelsea right now. I do think, though, Lampard started him on purpose. Man management. He, Giroud wants to leave. He's been open about that. And now that there is an opportunity for someone else to take the starting role, however long that may be during Abraham's injury... I think Lampard did the right thing and say, all right, Olivier, I want you here. I want you to stay. Go start. I believe in you. It obviously didn't work out, but I think Lampard did the right thing. It just backfired on him. So let's go to Tottenham and another win for Jose, but another clean sheet goes missing. So will the right acts have been read after another late switch off? I almost think he shouldn't. He seems, and, and, I, and I know you can only takes so much from press conferences because everything is a diplomatic answer and, and whatnot and not what they truly believe. But he does look genuinely happy. He's always got a smile on his face. And I almost think it would seem strange for him to walk into the dressing room or to walk to the training ground the next day and just go off on the guys. I think they would almost think, where's where this coming from? We won. And so I don't think he really needs to do that yet. I think he can be stern with them. And he should be because, like you said, another non-clean sheet. And what is Mourinho's MO? Clean sheets, win 1-0, and all of those things. And it hasn't happened yet. It obviously has been a short period of time. And he's still you know, working out what he wants out of, out of the squad. Um, but I don't think he should, should read the riot act to them just yet. If this persists for you know, a month or two and they're not improving, then I think the frustration starts to come out. But not yet. I think Tottenham right now are, are on a good run. They're back to, especially attacking-wise, back to kind of their best. And so I think he should focus on more of the positives as opposed to highlighting the negatives right now with the squad. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think it's a case of, especially from my point of view, just enjoy the wins for now. Like The clean sheets will come. I think you only really read the right act if we thrown that away and drawn three all. Then you'd be really throwing teacups and what have you. But I think, you know, after such a lackluster start to the season, let's just enjoy this sort of gung-ho approach to football because it's you know just something different it's new and just ride the wave really um very very quickly jack Grealish, can he make a name for himself in the england squad with euro 2020 on the horizon i think he should at least get the opportunity the problem is he only has two matches in march to do so and because of that i think that will probably keep him out of the squad. I mean, you know, he may be on the preliminary squad. He might go to, you know, a, a week of training with them. Unfortunately, though, unless he has a monster season for the rest of the campaign, I think he's going to miss out on Euro 2020, which again, you know, kind of unfortunate because he's a very talented player. You see the things he can do with Aston Villa, you know, this year in the Premier League, but also in the Championship before. I think he definitely has the talent. I think right now he just doesn't have the time. 
yeah, I think maybe World Cup 2022, he could be a bolt on, but I think it's just unfortunately a few more people in the queue ahead of him. So two more games very, very quickly. Walshelford United, a good point for both teams, you'd have to say. Lee Smoussay, where does this form come from? Because he was absolutely rubbish at Bournemouth. And Burnley Crystal Palace, a good win for Palace. And it seems as if a new selfish side to Wilf Sahar is starting to pay dividends. And that's it for this show. So we'll pay some dividends to the Real Football Car shareholders. Thanks for listening and thanks for following as always. And more importantly, a huge thank you for Drew. Has been absolutely priceless this afternoon. Thank you ever so much as always. But thank you, Dan, for having me. I, I appreciate and enjoy coming on this show. And obviously we miss Carl today. I miss my strike partner, but I think I did an all right job as a false nine. New system, new tactics, but I think we did all right. And uh, hopefully he'll be back soon. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll be excited to, to join you again. Yes, I look forward to it, Drew. So with that said, it just leaves me to say that my name's Dan Tracy. This is the Real Football Cast in association with Loser Paul. And until next time, goodbye. Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.